0: Welcome to Christ Church. The following is a homily from our Sunday morning gathering in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Enjoy. The Holy Gospel of Our Lord Jesus Christ, according to Luke. Jesus was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And just then there appeared a woman with a spirit that had crippled her for 18 years. She was bent over and was quite unable to stand up straight. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said, Woman, you are set free from your ailment. When he laid his hands on her, immediately she stood up straight and began praising God. But the leader of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had cured on the Sabbath, kept saying to the crowd, There are six days on which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be cured, and not on the Sabbath day. But the Lord answered him and said, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to give it water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for eighteen long years, be set free from this bondage on the Sabbath day? When he said this, all his opponents were put to shame, and the entire crowd was rejoicing in all the wonderful things that he was doing. The Gospel of the Lord.
1: Praise to you, Lord Christ. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our strength our Redeemer. Oh, Amen. God. Please be seated. I was visiting with a colleague of mine and his uh, members of his parish came to him and says, um, we feel like you need to preach some more biblical sermons. Wasn't really sure what he meant. He said, well, well what do you mean by a biblical sermon? Like, well, I don't know, but I feel like it needs to be a biblical sermon. And so he, he, he scratched his head. he's like, well, I always preach from the Bible readings. I'm trying to figure out what it was. So, although I know this is not a a, a Bible. A lot of us Episcopalians confuse the Book of Common Prayer with the Bible. But he he, he goes and he grabs his Bible and he just carries it with him while he's preaching. And all of a sudden the people are complaining, oh my God, that was such a great biblical sermon. (laughs) You may have noticed that uh, this morning there uh, the the, the texts that we hear from the Scripture um, are, are not in, in the bulletin. We're, we're trying this out for a season. Some of you all uh, are going to love it. I heard several comments from the first service like, oh, thank you. And I heard other people saying, wait a minute. How am I supposed to follow along? Um, scripture was written to be heard. Scripture was written to be heard. And so we want to invite you for a season... To When the scriptures are being read, an, an, instead of following along in the passages in your bulletin, to open your hearts and your minds and your ears and hear what the Spirit might have to say to you um, in these words. What stands out to you? Um, so that, is a, that has nothing to do with my sermon. Um, it's just a, an opportunity to explain to you why when you open your bulletin, you're like, wait a minute, where's the reading from um, Hebrews? So uh, I do want to delve into the letter to the Hebrews that we heard uh, today. The last several weeks we have been uh, reading through this, um, this letter. Um, it is a letter that is written to a community of Jews who are being persecuted because of their faith um, in Jesus. This is, a, this is um, Jewish Christians um, who uh, believe uh, that, that Jesus is the Messiah and the Savior, and they're facing some persecution as opposed... Uh, as a result of their beliefs. Um, as you're reading it, you can kind of tell that the, the author knows deeply the history of Israel and the, story, uh, the stories of Israel. And, and, and frequently sort of uh, goes back to him and points back to them. Uh, some have said that this letter could be sort of a commentary or a reflection um, on the Old Testament. Uh, for us Christians, we do not believe that the Old Testament is outdated. That's not what the word old means. The Old Testament means that it is the first or the original testament. And, and, and so these earliest Christians are wrestling with this Jewish story and how does Jesus fit into this. And so the letter of Hebrews is reflecting upon Israel's story. Um, the author has two main goals that he is trying to. We assume that it's a he, although there is... Uh, some scholarship that has argued uh, that it is a woman who has written this letter. Uh, But the author has two main goals. The first is that um, the author believes that Jesus is superior to anything else and that we should hold fast to our faith and belief in Jesus. The other thing that the author wants to uphold is is that we need to remain uh, faithful to this belief even in the midst of persecution. So... um, I. I kind of think about one of my favorite uh, movies is Braveheart, right? And one of the reasons, because like at the, the end of the movie, you know, Mel Gibson gives his Braveheart speech, and you're just, you know, ready to get going. And, and that's sort of what the letter to the Hebrews is. It's sort of a Braveheart speech, right? These are people who are facing um, horrible afflictions in their daily life, and, and the author says, you know what, um, these things are part of life, but there is something even greater and that is Jesus. Um, this letter comes, the, the, the scripture that we heard, the portion of the letter that we heard today is towards the end um, of the letter. And the author is offering this image or this metaphor um, of two mountains and, and talks about how, um, in, you know, in, in when Moses goes um, to the mountain to receive the law Uh, Moses has to shield his eyes so he does not see God. He has to, you know, there's sort of this approaching God in fear. And and, and the author of Hebrews says, you know, we don't have to be afraid anymore because the perfecter of our faith has come and we are now living on the second mountain. So much of our faith lives, um, for some reason, is still driven by this notion and this idea of fear. And not fear in the good way, right? I mean, so there 's fear in the sense of we have awe of God, right We think God is is bigger than we are, so we are in awe of God. sort of reminds me um, Kristen and I, when we were living in Austin, we go uh, to book people down there because uh, Jenna Bush was um, selling copies of her book, and we had seen it on The Today Show and thought it was you know sound like it was a great novel, a great book and was supporting a worthy cause, and so we decided that was going to be our Christmas gift, and so we go down and we wait in the line to go buy these books for our families and have her sign it, and as we're waiting in the line, I see a Snoopy snow cone machine, which is one of the greatest inventions of humankind. (laughs) And so I say, oh, my niece would love this, so I grab it, and I'm holding on to it. We get up to the line where Jenna Bush is, and she goes, what's that? And I said, if my Snoopy no come Right? I was sort of like, here's someone famous, and so I am in awe. So there's a good kind of awe. There's also sort of a fear, which is like, oh, my gosh. Um, you know, it's just not the fear I had. Like, Jenna Bush was going to, like, destroy me in five seconds. Um, and, and, and so the author wants us not to live in fear, but to live in hope and joy. Faith, the author says, is not something... Faith is that we have to live in a hopeful hopeful expectation, that faith is not something that is immediately realized. And this is not an unimportant part about our faith life, right? We live in a a religious culture in Tulsa that says if you believe strong enough, if you have enough belief, then God is going to answer your prayers. And then you sit there and you go, well, you know, here's the prayers I asked for and God didn't. Uh, answer them, and, and it seems to be that the, that the, the response is, is, well, then you didn't have enough faith. But the reality is, is that in Scripture, um, faith is something that sometimes is like, you're not going to see this, but don't worry, somebody else will. This is the story of Moses in the Old Testament as they have been traveling for for 40 years in the desert, right? And, 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 and Moses is sitting there walking for these people who do nothing but complain all day long for 40 years. And then God says, hey, guess what? You're not going to see the promised land. You're going to die before you get there. Right? Now, if I'm Moses, I'm like, well, forget that. I'm out of here. <laughs> but, but, but Moses is a, is, is a sign and symbol of faith who, who says, okay, well, somebody else is going to realize this thing that I'm not going to. We are invited and challenged in this letter that despite the trials and tribulations that we face, which, let's be honest, are not as uh, are probably not as bad as what the, the, the people that this uh, letter is being written to are experiencing, but we are invited, despite what happens in our life, to live on this second mountain, this mountain um, of joy. Um, I, I, I read and, and deeply appreciate uh, the New York Times opinion writer, um, David Brooks, and he's written a new book called The Second Mountain. And it's sort of a chronicle of David Brooks's own life and transformation, um, in which he just, he, you know, he, he had this experience that he can only say was an experience of Jesus that has caused him. And this is, you know, because he he, he's been Jewish for most his li- of his life, that he had this profound experience of Jesus that has transformed him and and changed him in some way, and, and, and it has caused him to sit there and think about, well, what story and narrative has he been living his life out of? Brooks says, and, 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 and Brooks says that the, the, the problem with our modern culture is, is that we often focus on and search for happiness, which Brooks says is happiness is sort of fleeting, and what we need to be looking for is joy. Uh, Brooks writes that joy doesn't fade. To live with joy is to live with wonder, gratitude, and hope. That people who are on the second mountain have been transformed and they are committed. The outpouring of love has become a steady force. And and, and Brooks knows firsthand um, how uh, precarious life on this first mountain can be because he notes that it is that reason that that for most of his life he lived this way That caused his marriage of 27 years to end. And and, and it was sort of looking, instead of being inward focused and saying, what do I want? um, This transformation caused Brooks to say, well, what do other people want? This past summer, um, a book was recommended to me called Flourish, and it's uh, an author who is trying to offer um, another idea about what it means to live a whole life. And the author says, uh, again, like Brooks does, that, that we oftentimes have been driven by this notion of what makes us happy, right? And so sometimes I'm feeling sort of sad, I'm feeling sort of bad, and, and, and in those moments I know that my tendency is to go for the food that is the worst for me, right? Comfort food. And, and, and I eat it and I have like moments of happiness, but then later I'm sitting there going, oh my God, what is wrong with me? Why did I eat that? I don't have a 20-year-old stomach anymore. <laughs> you know, or, or you're in the store and you see something and you begin to, to, to think about all the ways in which you deserve this thing and you go and you buy it and then the bill comes and you're like, what in the world did I buy this thing that I can't afford? So in, the, in, in, so in this, this book of Flourish, um, he says we need to have something else beyond happiness as a measure of what all... <laughs> what a whole life is. He says, um, if happiness was the sole measure, he says all we would have is circuses and no libraries. If happiness was the sole measure of life, we would have nothing but circuses and no libraries. So the author says is that positive emotion is an important part of who we are as a human being, right? How we feel is not unimportant. But he notes that there are some people like myself, who are introverts, and introverts are just naturally um, sort of a little bit more pessimistic. So people who are introverts tend to kind of feel down uh, more than extroverts do. But happiness or positive emotion is not an unimportant thing, he says. The second, he says, is that we have to be engaged in a way that brings meaning to life. But he says the problem is is that our engagement is often in retrospect. Right? It's looking back at something months or years later and saying, oh, that's what that was all about. And so a moment becomes transformed, but in the middle of it, you don't know what to make of it. He says that we have to have a life of meaning, something that drives the purpose of our life, something that drives our value. And then something that's similar to meaning but is different, he says, is that we have to have accomplishment, things and this is different than winning, and he's really clear that accomplishment is not about winning. Accomplishment is about things that we achieve for other people, not for ourselves. And the final thing he says is, is that we have to have positive relationships, that human beings are made and connected for, for human connection, and so we need to have those human connections. So, so beyond happiness, he says that you know, how we feel is important having some sort of engagement that brings importance and meaning to our life, having meaning, something that drives us internally, accomplishments that we accomplish for other people, and these positive relationships. While we don't face the sort of oppression and persecution that the audience of this letter likely faced, we do face what St. Augustine talked about was the oppression of choices. In essence, we oftentimes think that freedom is the ability to choose, but Augustine says that freedom is not the ability to choose, but it is freedom is living the life that God has wanted you to live. And so true freedom is about choosing well. And this has profound impact upon our discipleship. Where we live our life, which mountain we are in, are we in the first mountain of fear or the second mountain of joy, is not an inconsequential question. And what we live for is important. We see how important this is. We're here this morning to bless children as they return back to the classrooms. Um, In the book, Soul Searching, the Religious and Spiritual Lives as American Teenagers, the authors note that teenagers in our culture are driven by this false idea of what happiness is, and our children are miserable because of it. Our children are reporting higher levels of depression ever, higher levels of anxiety. Our children are miserable because we tell them, oh, you have to be happy, and they're like, well, I don't feel happy all the time. like, well, I don't either. That's called normal. The creator of uh, VeggieTales, I don't remember how many of you all were raised on on singing broccoli, but um, the author of VeggieTales was reflecting back upon the failures of his enterprise and he writes that our gospel um, in america has become a gospel of following your dreams and being good and talks about how all the bad choices that we do in the name of our dreams are the name of our happiness that we walk away from marriages to follow our dreams we abandon our children to follow our dreams we hurt people in the name of our dreams and that that's really not a christian virtue And so the book of Hebrews offers us something beyond ourselves, which is Jesus, who the author describes as the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's nature. And this is really where the the, the lesson about the two mountains comes home, because what oftentimes happens is is that Christians sort of reduce down Christian living um, as like five steps to getting from mountain one to mountain two. Right. And, and so our preaching sometimes is more about, well, here's the let me give you the list of things that you need to be doing in your life. When really the gospel message is, is, hey, guess what? We're already on the second mountain. You did nothing to get to the second mountain. God and Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit did all of it. You get to reap the benefits. And the question implicit in our baptism is, are we going to live on the second mountain? What we have ended up doing unintentionally and maybe in some intentional ways is institutionalizing life on the second mountain in which we think that building up a church structure is the most important thing when it is not the most important thing. The most important thing is building ourselves into the nature of God who has revealed what life on the second mountain is like. For those of you who grew up in the Roman Catholic Church may have remembered the Feast of Corpus Christi, a celebration of the sacrament and the importance of the sacrament in our lives. But the Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, is not the bread and wine. It is us. The body of Christ in a mysterious way is in the bread and wine. I believe when we consume it, we are consuming Christ's flesh and consuming Christ's blood in some mysterious way. But the real body of Christ is you And I. Neil Cole, who is an author, um, encourages us to stop thinking about discipleship as just simply planting churches and institutions and organizations, and rather, what we need to be doing is planting Jesus into the lives of the world that is around us and then our own lives. Right, We hear the story in the Gospels today, Jesus is the one who heals this woman. It is not the institution, it is Jesus who heals. It doesn't mean that the church is bad or the church is wrong or buildings or any of those things are false. It just means that our emphasis needs to be on the one who brings healing and truth and beauty into this world. This life on the second mountain that I'm envisioning uh, that I've tried to pull out of this letter to the Hebrews is not instinctive to us. It's, it's something that first and foremost requires grace from God. Grace has already been given to us. The second is it requires discipline. It requires us trying to live on the second mountain because it goes against the powers and principalities of the world who sits there and says, you know what? The fattening sugar laden food is what's going to actually make me feel better. When in reality, I know that it won't, but I continue to think that if I just eat the Ron's hamburgers covered with chili and cheese, somehow I'm going to be made whole. (laughs) This week, we are beginning our story groups, and story groups are an intentional time for us to live life together, to build human connection, to build friendships, but it's also a place where we get to struggle together where we get to sit there and name the ways in which we fall short and are broken human beings, not to to, to bewail our sinfulness, but to to celebrate the goodness and the grace of God in Jesus Christ and what God has bestowed upon us. And it's a message that we need to hear time and time again. And so I encourage you, I pray, that you devote yourself to one of these groups, that you devote yourself to a community which will form and strengthen you And be a sign of Jesus in your life. Amen.
0: Thank you for listening. For more, go to ChristChurchTulsa.org. And peace be with you.